Now, you'll notice that each of these talks have been about living as lords. That's because as Christ rises to rule the universe as the Lord, Jesus Christ, as the Lord of the universe, so we who are in Christ are raised up with him also to share his rule. It's a bit of a weird idea, especially in an egalitarian society like Australia where there are no lords, everybody's the same, but we reign with Christ. If we died with Christ, we will also reign with Christ. We are a kingdom of priests who reign on earth. And so we've looked at being the Lord of life and time. Look at the fact that we are the Lords of creation as we were created to be. And tonight we look at being Lords over sin. That is, we've risen to a new life. For Jesus has brought in the resurrection age. And as our diagram tries to express, the new age, the new creation, the new life has commenced with Jesus rising from the dead. Even before we were born, that age is the age into which we have been born. His is not an isolated, unique event, for in his resurrection, he was bringing many sons to glory, we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And we too have been raised to new life with him, in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, because we are the new creation in Christ Jesus. The new world has commenced, and it has started when Jesus rose from the dead. So the Bible talks of our regeneration, of our being born again, that we are raised up to sit with Christ in the heavenly places, rising with Christ, raised with Christ, and so talks of us as rulers. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Romans chapter 5. And we read, If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Death reigned because of Adam. It doesn't now say life reigns because of Christ. It says we reign in life because of Christ. We are the ones who rule the world, who reign in the world, who are the lords of the world, because we reign in life. We who know the grace and the abundance of the God's grace and have received the free gift of righteousness. But we have to remember that we're still in this old world. We are spiritually resurrected to the new life, but physically we're still dying the old death. And therefore, Beware of those who offer us heaven now. How do they offer us heaven now? They say, well, you're a Christian, you should have full health immediately, you should never be sick. Christians should never be sick. There's a lack of faith in God if you're sick. Well, in heaven we won't be sick. But we're not in heaven yet, not physically. Spiritually, yes, but bodily, no. Although promises justice... We will bring justice to the world. Yes, we will live in heaven in justice, but we're not yet in heaven. We're still in this earth where injustice rules. 
or they'll take references from the Old Testament, like the ones we read last night about Deuteronomy, that you will have wealth in the kingdom. Well, yes, the people of Israel, when the kingdom was Palestine, had the wealth that God promised them. But no, the kingdom of God is above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And we will not have the wealth of this world. Or they'll, pay, they'll say we'll have painless joy now. Well, we will have painless joy. There'll be no more weeping, no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears when we're in heaven. But not now. Over and again, heretical groups offer you heaven today. And it's a great mistake. We will get heaven tomorrow. We are in heaven spiritually today, but physically we're still on earth. And in terms of tonight's topic, people offer sinless perfection now in this age. And some Christians expect it, even if it's not being offered. They say, why do I continue to sin? I mean, if I've been born again, if I'm a Christian, surely sin should have been gone out of my life, but I keep sinning. Why is it I keep sinning if I've been regenerated? Being raised spiritually does not make a measurable, sorry, being raised spiritually does make a measurable difference in this age. So we mustn't reduce Christianity just to the next age. The world here and now has been altered because of Christ. Our lives here and now altered because of Jesus Christ. But yet the alteration is fairly small. The quantum leap into heaven doesn't happen until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And so last night we changed the graph a little bit by showing the change that happens in our lifetime. It is a change. It is a measurable change. It is an observable change. Society has changed since Jesus Christ. Individuals' lives have been changed since Jesus Christ. But the change in this world is a small change compared to the quantum leap of going to heaven. So last night you see this adapted diagram because people living in the light of the resurrection do live differently. Doing the good works that God has created for the world is changed by them. Creation is changed by them. Uh, there's a, a professor in, uh, uh, in the med school of Duke University called Harold Koenig who has written extensively on the subject of the observable difference in health outcomes for people who practice religion as opposed to those who do not practice religion. We live longer, we are healthier, we have less diseases, a whole range of variety. It's all particularly explicable just in natural things. By and large, Christians were the one group of people in our community who didn't take up smoking cigarettes. By and large, Christians do not drink alcohol to excess. By and large, Christian, there's a whole range of just human explicable. Health is helped by believing in family relationships. Christians, by and large, have a lower rate of divorce. In old age, people who still integrate into the community have less depression, and less depression is also a help in living longer. Well, we go to church right to our old age. We are still valued as people in the community, whereas most people, having given up church, having they no longer can really belong to the football club, and the golf club becomes difficult, and in the end they can't even manage a croquet club. And so they just sit in their old people's home, alone, depressed, and... There's all kinds of reasons, Dr Koenig would argue, as to why religious people do better, but we do. 
There is a change. There is a difference. Now, while there's no promise for wealth, health, justice, etc. in the here and now, yet the new age is supposed to do something about sin in this world. Now, come with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Just after Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then you hit Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem for us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." It's a beautiful little paragraph in the Bible, that one. Mark it. It's it's just one of those passages that you can spend many happy hours pondering it, praying about it, thinking about it, because it's such a wonderful summary of the gospel. God's grace has appeared. God's generosity has appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to us, because God's grace trains us that having renounced ungodliness and worldly passions... It trains us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Notice those three things. You see, self-controlled is a word about yourself. Living under wisdom, being in control of your own life. Upright is a word that's about relationships. Your relationships with other people are put to right. And godly is a word about our relationship to God. As a result of becoming a Christian, as a result of turning my back on sin and accepting the Lord Jesus Christ, as a result of his regeneration, I now put my life to rights, I put my relationships to rights, and I put my relationship with God to rights. That's what the grace of God trains me to do. And all that training happens, you'll notice, verse 12, in the present age while we're waiting for the end, while we're waiting for the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's one of the verses of the Bible which calls Jesus God. There aren't too many, but there are several, and this is one of them. There is supposed to be a difference in this present age. The Lord Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, a peculiar people is the word. You don't like being thought of being peculiar, but you are if you're a Christian. A peculiar people, his own possession, who will be zealous for good works. In fact, the word is zealots for good works. And friends, that difference is real. That difference is apparent. While we, in our humility, do not want to be boasting, we mustn't ignore the reality of changed lives that has happened. Generally around this time of the year, the university sports associations have a national conference of university sports. Anyone go to it this year? No, you're all here instead of there. Uh, Well, it's around this time of year they have it. Generally at mid-year conference, someone turns up who has been at it, and it's always the same story. The difference, the radical, dramatic difference between a university conference run by people whose only interest is sport and a university conference run by people whose only interest is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For there, there is substance abuse. There, there is no care for study. There, there is no real care for each other. There is just people hitting upon each other sexually. There is the excess of alcohol. There is a notably measurable different culture. For that is not what BG Conference is like. This is not a place where you hear foul talk, where you have lewd and unedifying jokes being done. This is not where people are hitting upon people. This is not where people are wandering off into the bush to have sex with each other. This is not where people are vomiting up the alcohol. These are sports people vomiting up alcohol and excessive drugs and the rest. My friends, this is a notably marked different culture. Now, we don't want to be blowing our own trumpets and so therefore we don't look at this much. But we mustn't say Christianity has no impact. It does. You can see it. Back in 1990, the University of New South Wales put out a Psych 1 textbook. Uh, In it, they talked about the, the different kinds of people around the university. And one of the groups that they marked out as different to all the rest were the campus Bible study people of the university and gave a series of descriptions of what we were like, which actually was quite different to what other groups in the university community were. But it's not final. The changes we're talking of are not the quantum leap necessary to jump from one line up to the other line. The change is small and the change is gradual. Sin still plays an active part in each one of our lives. So how do we live as the Lord's over sin through the resurrection? Why are we so different to other people? And why aren't we more different to other people? What is the connection between this age and the resurrection age? in terms of sin. Now, the answer to these questions I've gathered together under four headings tonight. Two advocates, putting and hostility. I'll start with the advocates, but before we talk about advocate one and advocate two, we need to just remind ourselves of what an advocate is. Again, we're back to Mr Webster. An advocate is one to support or urge by argument to recommend publicly or a person who speaks or writes in support of a cause or a person, or a person who pleads for or in behalf of another person, an intercessor, or a person who pleads the cause of another in a court of law. I mean, the classic advocate is the lawyer, be it your solicitor, be it your barrister. They speak on your behalf. They argue your case for you. They defend you in front of the judge and in front of the jury. They are on your side doing your business for you, defending you, arguing for you, negotiating for you. That's what your lawyer is to be doing for you. He is your, she is your advocate. Okay, let's look at our advocates here then. Firstly, advocate one. For the first advocate is Jesus. And we go back to our diagram and we will now leave aside the creation to Jesus part of the diagram and just concentrate on the Christian era, the period of overlap, the AD years. And now introduce our first advocate, Jesus, into the diagram. A for advocate. Jesus who arose and ascended into heaven as our advocate. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Go to 1 John, 1 John. Not John's Gospel, the first letter of John. 1 John. 
This was written to a group of Christians where people had left. John is writing to the remaining group, encouraging them to stay firm in the truth. He starts off by pointing to the inconsistency of God's people sinning. The inconsistency of claiming to be in the light while you are still in the darkness. Chapter 1 verse 5. This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. To be in the light is not to be sinless. To be in the light is to be cleansed of your sin. If you have to be sinless to be in the light, then nobody is in the light except the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are not sinless. We are cleansed of our sin. And how do you get cleansed from your sin? But by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. And how do you claim that death? Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, well, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So it's not sinless. It's forgiven. It's cleansed. It's washed. It's made righteous, declared righteous by the God because of the death of Jesus on our behalf. So what do we do now if we sin again? Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ the righteous is the advocate. He can appear before the judge on our behalf, for he has not sinned. He can argue our case for us, for he has made propitiation for our sins. Big word, it means to turn aside anger. The judge is angry with us because of our sin. But he has turned God's anger aside by his death on behalf of our sin, so that our sin is not there in front of his father. And so when the books are opened up and the devil calls out my name and he'll say, I have this one, this is one of mine, God. Philip Jensen, he's, he's a sinner. And my barrister stands up and says, no, he's one of mine. Look at the book. And as God looks at the book, all my sins have been washed clean off the page. There is nothing there that stands against me. The devil now lies in his accusation. Oh, sure, I've sinned, but my sin has been washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ so that nothing now stands against my name, so that God can rightly declare me to be right with him because my advocate, Jesus, speaks on my behalf before God, claiming his death for my sins. This then is our great high priest, always interceding 
Advocating, an advocate is someone who intercedes, always interceding on our behalf. So Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives because he's risen from the dead. And he's risen from the dead to continually make intercession for his people. That as I sin and turn to him, so he makes intercession for me with God the Father. That's why I conclude my prayers by saying, through Jesus Christ my Lord. Because it is only through Jesus Christ that I can come to God the Father. There's no point praying to Mary. There's no point praying to the saints. There's no point praying to anybody else. Because only Jesus has paid the penalty. Only Jesus is my advocate with the Father who can present my case to the Father and argue it for me. And so he is the priest forever, the priest of the order of Melchizedek, the priest who has finished his work of sacrifice, the priest who sat down at the right hand of the Father, the priest appointed on the basis of an indestructible life, the priest who, has, having died now, has risen to enter into the Holy of Holies and present his blood that would make clean his people. He is the one who is our advocate, speaking to his Father on our behalf. And with him on our side, we have nothing to fear. For who can speak against us when we have him on our side? I've got a couple of brothers. I was the little one in my family until I grew big and they left home because I could beat them up. <laughs> There's no justice in being a youngest child. It's a wicked, horrible world that you live in. Hands up the youngest children. Yes, it's hard, isn't it? It's really tough. We don't get spoiled, do we? No, no. And we're not boring like those first children who achieve so much, you know, and so studious and organised and boring. But my older brother is a lot older than me. He was eight years older than me. And I remember being down the park kicking around a football when the local bullies and a group of them who were about three or four years older than me grabbed hold of my ball and then put it up in the top of a tree and so my brother Peter whom some of you will have known of he ever being brave and and uh, forthright told me to climb up the tree and get it <laughs> so I climb up the tree and get it and then these bullies come down to the bottom of the tree and they start shaking the trunk so that the tree is swinging back and forward like this and then my brother Peter, whom some of you know, <laughs> who's retiring tomorrow, uh, not before time I think, anyway, he, uh, <laughs> he did the brotherly thing that my mother always taught us to do. Because my, brother, my mother had a several kind of real profound philosophies of life. She always said, when you're swimming, make sure there's a fat man between you and New Zealand. Um, that's just one of the ways of keeping yourself safe in the surf. Uh, another one of her mottos in life was, you be the one that runs for help. Because you see, you don't get drowned going and saving somebody if you're running for help, do you? But you're not being a coward, you're doing something, aren't you? So with me wandering, waving around at the top of the tree, my brother Peter ran for help. <laughs> leaving me. 
alone with bullies at the bottom trying to work out whether the ball or the, or the boy would come down first. <laughs> the help he got was my big brother. And my big brother, you see, I was, I suppose, eight at the time. These bullies were 11. My big brother was 14 or 15. As he came down the hill, my heart leapt for joy. <laughs> and the closer he got to the tree, the faster the bullies ran away. And he helped me down out of the tree. It's great to have a big brother who can argue for you, who can do what you are unable to do or what your middle brother can't do. <laughs> to have a really big brother who's right in front of God and can argue your case for you, who has defeated the bully, the accuser, the liar, and who can speak up on your behalf and drive off the enemy. The Lord Jesus Christ is our big brother the ultimate big brother who won the victory over all the forces of evil for us and now protects us and defends us. When you have him on your side, you have nothing to fear. The end of Romans chapter 8 we read, Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us. Who can condemn me when I have Jesus fighting for me? He who died for us is he who has been raised and he is now raised to sit at God's right hand to speak up on our behalf. The death and resurrection of Jesus are all of a piece by his death we've been justified, declared to be right with God the judge. By his death, for his death was sufficient to turn aside God's righteous anger against all sin. Having justified us by his death, he was raised up to save us by his life. Come with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ paid for my sins. The resurrected life of the Lord Jesus Christ argues that death for me and saves me. He was crowned with glory and honour and he now pleads his death as our advocate. Not only for sins past, but for sins present and sins future. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. 
So to understand our position regarding sin, look where we are. You see, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we're dead to sins, but God has made us alive to him through the resurrection of Jesus. And now that we're alive to him, raised up to sit in the heavenly places, now we have real blessings, spiritual blessings. Come back with me to Ephesians. Now it says forward to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. You see in chapter 2 verse 6, we have been raised up with Christ to sit with him in the heavenly places. But look back to chapter 1 verse 3. That long paragraph. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. No, we haven't got the physical blessings yet of health and wealth and justice and happiness and joy, but we have got the spiritual blessings already. And what are they? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom. No, I haven't got wealth, I haven't got health, I haven't got the happiness, I haven't got the justice, but I've got forgiveness. I've got adoption into the family of God. I've got being chosen as one of God's children. I have been predestined to be his child. I have redemption. I have forgiveness. I have the knowledge of God's plans and purposes. These are the spiritual blessings. These are the things I have up there in the top line. The spiritual things that are worth having are all mine already in Christ Jesus. All right then. Our first advocate because of his resurrection means we don't have wealth, health, justice, happiness here, but we do have forgiveness, pardon, and a friend in court there. That's what we now have. But what about change here? Does the resurrection age impact on the activities of sinning here in this age, here in the now? And if it does make a difference, how does the resurrection change things in this age? Which brings us to advocate number two, namely the Holy Spirit. For he too is called our advocate. But his advocacy is not with the Father on our behalf in the resurrection age in the heavenly places. His advocacy is with us here in this age, in this world. So back to our diagram where we saw our first advocate rise to heaven to speak for us there. Now we see our second advocate descend from heaven to speak to us here. This advocate, the Holy Spirit, was sent and given by none other than the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And his ministry, the Holy Spirit's ministry, is directly connected to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. For the Old Testament promise 
of the coming of the new age, the coming of the resurrection age, was the coming of the Spirit of God who would come in a new way. Now, I'd like to read to you from Ezekiel 36, but that would be naughty. So let me read to you from Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 11, which says the same thing. <laughs> in Ezekiel 11, verse 19, 20, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my rules, and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. The new age has the law like the old age has the law. But the old age had the law written in tablets of stone, kept in the ark, in the tabernacle. The new age has the law written on our hearts by the Spirit of God who moves us to be obedient to what God requires of us. The resurrected people will be different concerning sin. Different not just because they are forgiven and washed clean, but also different because the spirit within them will move them towards holiness of living, writing God's word on their heart and moving them to be obedient from the heart. So Jesus said to one of the rulers of the Jews who came to him at night, Nicodemus, you must be born again. For that is what is required in the kingdom of God. Come with me and look at that for a moment. Dear Nicodemus, John chapter 2. John chapter 2. The end of two it is. Chapters and verses were added into our Bible many, many years later. Generally, they're very helpful. They certainly are helpful in me. I'll look up a place quickly. But sometimes they divide the passage where it shouldn't be divided and this is one of those occasions because chapter 3 just continues straight on from chapter 2. I'm reading from verse 23. Now, 2.23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? People aren't converted by miracles. And people who are converted by miracles are not to be trusted. For many people came following Jesus because they saw miracles. 
And Jesus didn't trust them. Because what a person needs is not to be astounded by some miracle. What people need is to be transformed by the Spirit of God. What people need is to be born again. What people need is to start all over again with a spiritual regeneration. Nicodemus, you see, he's the classic of what the end of chapter 2 is talking about. He's the man who says, Rabbi, we know you're from God because look at the miracles. And Jesus said to him, you need to be born again. But Nicodemus, you see, he's only thinking physically. How can you actually squeeze back into your mother's womb? That's, just not, that's not possible. He hasn't understood born of the Spirit. But don't feel sad for Nicodemus. He had Ezekiel. He should have known. Because he's a teacher of Israel and he doesn't know what Israel should be taught. The need for spiritual rebirth. The Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Jesus, could not though be given until Jesus was glorified. We're in John's Gospel. Go across to chapter 7. Chapter 7. For here is the connection between the Spirit coming and the resurrection. It wasn't until Jesus was resurrected that the Spirit could come upon the people. Chapter 7, verse 37. John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It was in his death and resurrection that Jesus was glorified and once glorified, he would give his spirit. And so, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus knew the time had come for the Son of Man to be glorified, we read in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 23. And he was in the upper room with his disciples. And it is described, this upper room conversation of Jesus, in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 of John's Gospel. You've got all these chapters of John's Gospel about one night and one conversation. Very important conversation. It's the conversation on the night he was betrayed. Jesus was about to leave them. Leave them for a little while in his death and then return to them and then leave them on a longer term in his resurrection. And there, in that conversation, he promises the coming of the Spirit. Five times is he promised to come to them. Let me take you through them very quickly. They are in John chapter 14, verse 15 to 18. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the, Lord, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Later in the same chapter, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in the next chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have seen, been with me from the beginning. And then in chapter 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And then a couple of verses later, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It is in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Spirit is sent to his people. The Spirit cannot come until the Lord goes to heaven. But when the Lord does go to heaven, he doesn't leave his people alone. He sends them his Spirit. This translation I've just read translates the word helper, but it's the word advocate. He will be my advocate with you. He will be my advocate with the world. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. He will convict you of me and my, my resurrection, my teachings and my truth. In summary, these passages teach that the Spirit replaces Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus, as he is called in Romans 8. And the Spirit, when he replaces Jesus, witnesses to Jesus, teaches of Jesus, reminds them about Jesus, will teach them Jesus' teaching, will convict the world of, of, of Jesus, and all in the context of the disciples bearing much fruit, keeping Jesus' commandments remaining and being kept because the Spirit has come to them. Just as a little aside, it is... For this reason, amongst many reasons, that I'm not a Roman Catholic. Because Roman Catholicism sees that the replacement of Jesus in the world is the Church, in particular, the Pope. Because the Pope is called the Vicar of Christ. The word Vicar means replacement, substitute. Vicarious suffering is suffering as a substitute on our behalf. And to have the Pope as the Vicar of Christ is a blasphemy because the Holy Spirit is the Vicar of Christ. I go and I will send him to you. He will do my work that I have left behind. He is the one, not the Church, not the Pope. It is the Holy Spirit who is the Vicar of Christ. Christ's substitute in this world now. So, with the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes. And the disciples at last understand Jesus and his teaching. And the disciples then start bearing witness to Jesus to all the world. Now, before we depart from the Spirit, let me just say a few more matters because this is something that has been terribly confused by Pentecostal and charismatic teaching over the last 50 or so years, which has seriously misunderstood what the Bible is saying. Uh, nearly all of the Pentecostal teaching comes out of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which they have not understood properly, and hardly any of it comes out of this passage, which is where Jesus explains what the role and work of the Spirit really is. That is, the fruit of the Spirit is infinitely more important than the gifts of the Spirit.
that you are full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, that is really important. That you can speak in tongues or can do administration, that is really trivial and unimportant. Grasp what is important and what is unimportant. You also need to notice that the gifts of the Spirit are not actually the work of the Spirit. Because the same gifts, prophecy, is the gift of the Father in Romans 12, the gift of Jesus in Ephesians 4, and the gift of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. But actually, that's not true either. The only reference to the gifts of the Spirit in the writings of Paul is in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, when the gift of the Spirit there is the Gospel. The phrase, gift of the Spirit, is actually not in the Greek text. And so to see the fundamental work of the Spirit as giving gifts is a serious misunderstanding of the triune nature of God. For God, Father, Son and Spirit will give gifts. The work of the Spirit is to apply Jesus into the lives of people, especially in producing fruit, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and so on. You are called upon to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, in contrast to being filled with alcoholic spirits. But what happens when you are filled with the Spirit? Do you suddenly start doing miraculous works? No. But the character of Christian life is born in you. For you are filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, and giving thanks in all things and submitting to one another. That will be a spirit-filled life. The spirit-filled life is not going around waving your hands over this section of the audience so they can all be slain in the spirit. Nobody is slain in the spirit in the New Testament other than Ananias and Sapphira and they're taken off and buried. They don't get up later and contribute to the offertory. <laughs> Their failure to contribute to the offertory is what led them to the grave, for it's a real slaying. But they're not slain by the Spirit. They lied to the Spirit, but they're slain by God. There is no slaying of the Spirit. It's, it's, it's a make-up thing that's got nothing to do with the Bible and is contrary to the Bible. And the Spirit coming to you, and when you're filled with the Spirit, doesn't mean you suddenly get the Toronto blessing and all fall around laughing and gaggling and, 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 and barking like mad dogs. Because the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. If you're out of control, that's not the work of the Spirit of God. The work of the Spirit of God enables you to have self-control. Now, my friends, do not be beguiled by the false teaching about the work of the Spirit of God. For if you are filled with the Spirit, you'll be singing to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because you'll be teaching each other with thankfulness in your heart to God and you will submit to one another for submission is the sign of being filled with God's Spirit. And when you're led by the Spirit, what are you led by the Spirit into? It's not into your career, into your marriage or into your church or into your mission field. When you're led by the Spirit, you're led to kill sin in your life. It's not a phrase that's used often, only occurs twice in the New Testament, Galatians 5, Romans 8. Now, let me read from Romans 8. Turn it up there, we're in John, aren't we? Go to Romans 8, verses 9. For there is the classic on being led by the Spirit. Romans 8. 
Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, but to live according to, to live, sorry, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see the connection in verse 13 and verse 14? The word for means because. The phrase being led by the Spirit of God is referring to put to death the deeds of the body. That's how you do, that's how you're led by the Spirit. It's one of the great puzzles of my life that I've been working on for many years here at mid-year conference often and amongst undergraduates for as long as I can remember. That the Holy Spirit is not an aspirational class, middle class Australian. But over and over again, people tell me they've been led by the Spirit to do this career or that career. But the Spirit always seems to lead them up the socioeconomic scale. They're led by the Spirit to be a lawyer. They're led by the Spirit to be a doctor. They're led by the Spirit to be a dentist. They're led by the Spirit. It always goes upwards. They're never led by the Spirit to be a street cleaner. They're never led by the Spirit to be a garbage collector. They're never led by the Spirit to do anything useful in life. It's always to do something which makes more money because our Holy Spirit is very aspirational and very middle class. Does it not scream to you that you are using the language in a way differently to the way in which God speaks about his Spirit? If you are led by the Spirit, you will be led to put to death the misdeeds of your body. For that's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes you holy. That's where he leads you, into holiness. Well, that's going to introduce us to the whole subject of putting to death the deeds of the body. And so the whole issue of putting is where we're heading next after we've sung a song.